Ellen on politics. If I have property that interferes with your right to have that property, you don't have it. I have it. Together we'll stand. say, hey, everyone gets a thousand bucks a month, you're like, wow, that sounds too good to be true. It is not too good to be true. Together we will stand, every boy, girl, woman, and a man. Hello, this is Alan on Politics, and I'm Alan. That music you just heard was from Canteat performing Let's Work Together. Well, the news this week continues the worries about the COVID virus. We have recent record surges around the world and across the United States and the ongoing climate crisis, which huge record wildfires in different parts of the world, including here in Oregon and nearby California, the smoke traveling all the way across the United States. And we have a messy withdrawal from Afghanistan, which reinforces the doubt of a lot of people that our current political structure is capable of managing anything. Record challenges and a wobbly social system, political system. I think that's the situation that we're facing and that a crisis due either to the pandemic or the climate crisis or the economic situation the political system is going to need a revamping of some kind of dramatic form. And that's the purpose of this show, that we can revamp it, right? <laughs> no, that we at least can contribute because we needed a discussion about where we're at and what's exactly the, the root of our problems and where we can go from here. What's the next step? So I present my ideas about a basis for um, a political viewpoint and a set of policy proposals that would carry that out. And I ask you to give me your feedback either on the Allen on Politics Facebook page or in the comments uh, under any of the videos on the Allen on Politics YouTube channel. I also have the Allen on Politics podcast, but I'm not sure where uh, the central location for any comments is, if there is one. So this week, I do want to thank those of you who have been writing comments on previous shows, and I intend to respond to some of those comments in future shows as well as this show when the topic is uh, suitable for the question or comment. Today is about the grounds for rights of private property and how this would justify a guaranteed basic income. That's the topic, and I did have one comment on the question of property rights and how the constitutional founders thought about them. So I thought I'd start with that and then get to the general question of property rights and a universal guaranteed income in these next couple segments of the show. So this, uh, this friend actually, he wrote and asked about the Federalist Number 10. I had said it is a document that shows how the founders of the U.S. Constitution feared the common people invading the rights of private property. And he said he had trouble finding that theme in it. Well, one thing to remember is that this is not just a philosophical document about good government that James Madison is writing in the Federalist Number 10. He is writing a political document, making an argument to persuade people to support the new Constitution. There's a lot of skepticism about the Constitution, what the real purpose of this new structure, this new national structure um, overseeing all the states was meant to achieve. So in this argument, it seems like 
Madison is primarily saying he's worried about factions and he thinks a government over an extended territory will do a good, better job of um, suppressing the problems of factions than a small face-to-face -face democracy would. Well, this is not what he's arguing for, really. I mean, you got to look behind the scenes at the context. In the first place, he's arguing that you need a superseding national government to offset what's going on in the states, not, not small democracies, but the states who have themselves a system of representation. What was he worried about? The historical context is just before the Constitutional Convention, there's an uprising in Massachusetts where common people were trying to um, get out of onerous debts that were causing them to lose their little farms. There was a, a, a fear among the political and economic elite that this foretold that there would be constant efforts within the states for the common people to, to fight back against what they felt was oppressive policies on the part of the uh, elites. The mistake I made when I did this originally on, say, episode five, was that I had um, mistakenly remembered that it was the effort in the states to uh, extend voting rights to people of less property that they were worried about. No, that came later after the Constitution. People in the states tried to get the states to lower the property requirements for being able to vote. But what um, was true that, is that the Federalist Number 10 had in mind these efforts to abolish debts in the states. And I want to point out just a couple of quotations to back this up. First of all, Madison says early in his argument, those who have and those who are without property have ever formed distinct interests. So this is similar to the kind of things Aristotle said, that the biggest problem in uh, democratic governments was that the, the people will get together and fight against the people who have more property. Uh, same thing Madison's saying here. He's putting this in the context of this whole uh, long classical tradition of the problems with democracies. I, another quote is a little later in it, and it goes like this. A rage for paper money, for an abolition of debts, and for an equal division of property, or for any other improper or wicked project, that's what they were trying to avoid, right? So the argument behind the argument and the context of this is that you want to suppress factions specifically where the majority tries to get together against the minority, the minority being the wealthy, the majority being those with less property. If you create a national government, it will be harder for a majority to form and act against the rights of property. Whereas in the states, because they're smaller, it would be easier. So that's my explanation of why I said what I said about Federalist Number 10. It takes a reading with some sense of the context of the times and that uh, he's presenting one argument when really he's invoking a, a deeper argument at the same time. So let's move on now to the larger topic of the rights of property. How do we justify them? That was Private Property by Judas Priest. What is the basis for a right of private property? Private property means that some individual or specific group of individuals can possess some material good, use it as they wish, 
exchange it, destroy it, and exclude anybody else from making use of that particular good. What would give anybody the right to claim those kind of powers over something and exclude everybody else? Well, if you ask the average person, they're probably going to give you an answer somewhat like, you know, I worked for what I have, and therefore I deserve it. So my property comes from my working for it. Well, that evades the question by presuming a lot of things. You could push it if you want to get people <laughs> pissed off at you. You could push it and say, well, in order to make that effort, either you had to be working with some goods, you had to have some space you could do your work in, you had to have equipment, maybe office equipment, maybe machinery, who knows what. Who had the right to that stuff to give you the permission to use it and pay you for your work? Or if you're working on your own, who, who, what gave you the right to use that stuff for your own, for making an effort and producing something? So property, you have to go back a step further instead of simply saying, I exist within a realm of property rights, and when I work in it, I deserve some of that property. See, where does that right to property come from in the first place? Think of it this way. Here's a clearer picture. We are material beings living in a material world. And that may not be all that we are, who knows, but we are that at least. And to live, we need some space for our body. We need access to water, to food, um, to materials, to get shelter from the elements like building a structure to live in or having clothes. We need that stuff to survive. And the world provides that stuff. Uh, in the form of natural resources as nature. Nobody created it. It's there. Why can people claim certain parts of that benefits of nature to use for themselves and exclude anybody else from using? How does that arise in the first place? Well, here I've only ever heard two types of answers. And one is that we all have an inherent right to property that no government can interfere with. The other one is that it's actually created by government for the benefit of society in general. That is, if we all benefit from it, then it's a good thing for a government to do. That's the basis of the right. So let's take those two arguments because I think the first one does not hold up at all. The second one is the one that we have to lean on. First argument, there's an inherent natural right to property. This idea goes back to John Locke, who lived about 100 years before the American Revolution. He was an Englishman, and he had several writings that were influential for his time. But his work on government, his two treatises of government, were not very influential until the time of the American Revolution, almost 100 years later, because the revolutionaries and founders picked up these arguments and used them. Uh, they'll be very familiar to you if you're familiar with American tradition at all. How did he put this argument? His first treatise was against the divine right to rule on the part of some kind of monarchy or aristocracy. And it was all drawing from the Bible and making arguments as, as to why he didn't believe there's any divine right to rule. The second part then said ruling really comes from the consent of the government. Familiar idea, right? People come together for the express purpose of protecting their natural rights of life, liberty, and property. He says property. hundred years later, Jefferson, in drafting the Declaration of Independence, will say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which shows that Jefferson, for one, was a little ambivalent about these claims about the right to a natural right to property. So 
people are in a state of nature, according to Locke. Imagine this. There's no government. You live outside of a government structure, and so there's just nature. You're free. You can do whatever you want. You have life, and you need some material goods to survive. So when you go out and you cultivate a piece of land or you gather wood for a fire or you, you know, do some hunting or fishing, in that way, by joining your labor with material resources, with natural resources, you've effectively created a claim on them. That natural right doesn't need any government to sanction that. So governments are then created in order to protect those rights because they may be vulnerable without all of us coming together to create a government to protect them. So governments are created to protect our natural rights. And if they aren't doing that, we have the right to overthrow them. The argument used by the American uh, revolutionaries. Also, Locke talked about things like the three branches of government, executive, judicial, and legislative, which are also appropriated by the people writing the state constitutions and a little bit later, the U.S. Constitution, obviously. What about this idea that people exist in a state of nature and they mix their labor with things and can therefore create a claim of private property? Well, I think it has three big problems, at least. The first is that such a state of nature never existed. As far as we're aware, in early societies, they saw land as not something you would own privately for your own use. They saw land as something sacred that the whole community would benefit from and should be treated with respect. So their, their ideas were not one of property. Property, maybe you had some personal possessions, but no claims on the land, no kind of larger claims to have a right that nobody else can intervene in. Um, so state of nature never really existed. In fact, when you think about how claims on the earth and its goods were originally created in modern civilizations, it's always an act of force. Like the North American continent, how did the colonists come over here and claim it? Well, the kings, queens of England, France, Spain, they, they had people come over here and make a claim that this was now owned by the claimed by the king of their country, and therefore that monarch had the right to parcel it out to people on whatever principles they wanted to. They gave some to favorites, they gave some for colonies to divide among themselves, dependent, but they had the right to do that. So originally property in most of our societies were by force coming in, taking land from the native inhabitants and then parceling it out through a political process. The rulers decided who got what. It wasn't people going out in a state of nature even though we have this American mythology of homesteaders going out and, uh, you know, cultivating the land and staking their claim to it, that was kind of rare. The homesteaders had to be able to claim land that was already permitted to them by the government, so they couldn't pick from anything. So that idea that a state of nature once existed is not true. Second one is that Locke makes this odd uh, um, uses this odd example of having your servant go out to collect nuts or something, and then therefore those nuts become your private property. Well, the obvious question is, if the servant collected the nuts or did the hunting or cultivating the land or anything else, wouldn't that property belong to the servant because the servant had mixed his or her labor with it? You didn't mix your labor with it, so why is it yours? Uh, this is <laughs> a problem uh, for the later employer-employee relationship because it's based on the master-servant relationship with the presumption that if somebody hires you to do something, then they can appropriate some of the results of what you work to produce. 
the grounds for that are controversial. But that's a little more complicated than I want to go into today, but it is problematic for Locke's theory, especially in the modern world. And so we covered that in a different program. But the third problem is that Locke has to include a caveat on this theory that says you can only appropriate the goods of nature if there's as much and as good left for the other people. Now, if you went around appropriating things and there wasn't enough left for anybody else, nobody would come together in a social agreement to protect that right of property so that they couldn't have anything and you had all that you had. Uh, so that um, caveat creates the basis for a different proposition, which is that there's limitations on the right of private property. So the theory overall, I don't think, makes a lot of sense. And thus, we have to take recourse to the more persuasive idea that private property rights are established by us collectively through the government if they benefit all of us. Now, you can make a case, and actually Locke made this case, that by dividing up property rights, that production would become more efficient. People would have the willingness to work on their own property to make it more productive, and that would benefit other people because they you know, exchange with them or whatever. But to exchange with people, of course, the other people have property too. But overall, if you have private property and we're each working to benefit our own condition, we'll be producing more that's through some mechanism can be shared with other people. So that makes some intuitive sense. Our effort is involved as uh, the initial questioner of when we asked, what is the basis of property? And they said, it's my effort, I work for it. So the effort comes into the picture and the idea that it somehow benefits us all is important as well. Now, how would that work in the modern world? We're not in an agricultural world where there's not even enough left for the whole population if people want to go out and take a piece of land and start cultivating and build a hut and all that. We're in a money economy where people work for in exchange for pay and they pay for the things they want and et cetera, et cetera. So in a money economy where it's not agriculturally based, but you have a variety of types of jobs that need to be done. What would be the equivalent of as much and as good left over? That's the question we have to ask in our next segment. You can help yourself, but don't take too much. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God. That's the child that's got his own, that's got his own. That was Billie Holiday singing God Bless the Child. John Locke then provided the theory of government that a hundred years later was taken up by the leaders of the American Revolution and the founders of the U.S. Constitution to justify what they were doing. The revolution was being conducted because the King of England was violating the natural and inalienable rights of the colonists. And the Constitution was constructed on the basis of the consent of the people, therefore having some democratic elements like allowing the people to vote for certain offices but it also had strong rights protecting private property from those very people. So Locke and the founding generation of the United States saw eye to eye in a lot of these things, and that was in part because they were both living through 
a long, slow process in England of moving from a feudal political, economic, and cultural system to a capitalist political, economic, and cultural system. Now you can see some of these changes in the very conception of land and wealth. Uh, in feudalism, control of agricultural land is the primary source of wealth. The people who control it are sanctioned by religion to have that control. And it comes with restrictions on your ability to use that land, like you have to pass it down within your family, and you have certain responsibilities to the peasants who actually work on the land. Whereas in capitalism, land is just another commodity that can be used or bought or sold however the owner wishes. And wealth is generated not just by land ownership, because that's a commercial enterprise being run for a profit, but it comes from any kind of commercial enterprise, such as you know buying and selling or transporting goods or uh, retailing goods, any, any of these various commercial enterprises on, a, on an equal footing with land can be a source of wealth. Locke's ideas were well fitted to the emerging capitalist order. And now that we are in a full blown capitalist system, how well are they holding up? Well, to repeat some of my arguments, his initial idea, his central idea that mixing your labor with natural resources gave you them a natural property right in them doesn't hold up very well because it doesn't answer the question why a person would be given permission to start mixing their labor with any particular piece of property or any natural goods um, when all the rest of us have an equal right to it. Why, why would you have a, an exclusive right to start doing that and create a private property right for yourself? It doesn't hold up a lot. But the, the other argument he makes that private property rights make people more productive uh, does have some uh, validity in capitalist society, at least apparent validity. The idea was that property is not justified by this inalienable right so much as the fact that it can inspire people to use their property to be more productive and create greater wealth for themselves. Now, the history of capitalism seems to bear this out, that the profit incentive helped create a lot of wealth. But then the other part of this for Locke was the caveat that there must be as much and as good left over for other people to access. His theory of private property rights would not have been plausible without that caveat, but how do you fulfill that caveat in a modern world? At the time of Locke, he could say, you know, there's as much and as good left over in North America. You can go to that new world and find land of your own. For the founding generation of the United States, the frontier was that fulfillment of the caveat. You just go out, find a piece of land of your own, and then, you, you know, now you can do what other people have done, as improve it and raise your position in life. Well, even at the time, those were not very realistic ideas that people could travel across the ocean or way out on the frontier and take an uncultivated piece of land and somehow uh, do enough, put enough work into it to survive on it, they and their family, and even generate productivity, more pr products for the rest of society. That, that was a very plausible idea. A lot of people actually worked not on the land, but in commercial enterprises. The 
the idea that uh, you can fulfill this caveat that everybody should have access to the goods of the earth is not well fulfilled by saying you can go out and get your own piece of land. Then it wasn't realistic, and now it's even less realistic. So how can we fulfill that caveat? Thomas Paine, another person of the American Revolutionary Generation, he was, came from Britain, but he lived in America, and he wrote a famous pamphlet, Common Sense, arguing that the colonies should be independent from Britain. And that was a very widely read and influential pamphlet just before the American Revolution and helped to do a large part of inspiring people to fight in that war. He also wrote another pamphlet, though, 20 years later, and this was called Agrarian Justice, in which he tackled the same questions that Locke had. He said that private property comes because when people improve the land, it's impossible to separate their improvements from the land itself. Therefore, it makes sense to establish a property right in it. And since all the rest of us gave that person the permission to start improving the land, in other words, gave them some access to it and the right to establish a property right, we deserve compensation. And what he proposed was an inheritance tax on land that would then fund a guaranteed basic income for everybody, every adult. That idea fits better in a society that's based on money and commercial activities than on growing food for yourself. And it's popped up repeatedly across American history. Most recently, as I'm sure you're aware, it was proposed by Andrew Yang in his 2019-2020 presidential campaign. That's when a lot of people first became aware of this idea, which others had been working on even before Yang. Uh, Yang proposes this for a different reason, though. He proposes it as a way to replace the income from people losing jobs to automation. Now, whatever, if whether it's true or not about automation replacing jobs, I'm not going to go into right now. But I would say, even if it's true, I have two problems with that justification. One is that a basic income doesn't seem enough to compensate someone for a lost job. Uh, it seemed a lot less to live on. And number two, it seems like a form of charity. Now that you don't have a job, well, we ought to help you out. And this is how we're going to do it, give you a basic income. I think it needs more of a foundation in justice. You just deserve some basic compensation for what you would have been able to get out of nature yourself. You could have you know, found a place to sleep, drink water, gather some food, hunt, whatever. What serves the purpose of that is having a basic income that, number one, allows you to survive. You have access to a home, water, food, the necessities of life. But then you can make more of that by putting more effort into it. You have to make effort to go out and find an apartment. You have to make effort to go buy food and cut it up and eat it. Not a lot of effort, but we're in a much wealthier society, so it shouldn't take that much effort, right? So basic income would be a way to fulfill this caveat that Locke put upon private property. In some, I think the best justification for a right of private property is that it benefits us all by increasing general productivity and that that Wealth should be shared with everybody through a foundation of a basic income, not as a minimal standard, but as the necessary foundation for any other arrangements that are made for a better society in general. That's it for this show. Please come back and listen again next week. 
And remember, if you want to make comments on anything I've said, you can go to the YouTube channel or the Facebook page for Alan on Politics. Thanks.